the uh, in the chat icon and uh, I'll get to it. Okay. Um, so this is the Shil Ilu Nishmosom Ephraim Shmuel and Avramaria Cohen, Chaya Tova Basaliezer Mendel HaKohen on the book of Yechezkel, the Sefer Yechezkel. Last week we started looking at verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. I'll just read through it just quickly. So we've got a, uh, you can, um, just to remind you uh, what we're dealing with here, uh, Yechezkel's de de uh, describing the faces of the Chayos. Uh, the heavenly creatures, these angels. Um, it says, Udemus Pnehem Pnei Odom, the likeness of their face was the likeness of a man. Upnei Aryeh, in the face of a lion, Al Eliamin, was on the right hand side. La Arabaton of the four of them, Upnei Ashomaya Smoral, La Arabaton, and the face of an ox was on the left of the four of them, Upnei Nesh, La Arabaton, and the face of an eagle. Uh, was the fourth face. Now, what's interesting is that we'll, we'll come to it eventually. It's uh, the possible, the verses indicated the exact location of three of the faces. The face of the man was obviously straight on, that's what he's looking at. Uh, to the right uh, was the face of an, a lion, to the left was the face of an ox, and it says there was a, also the face of a of an eagle. It didn't tell you where it was. The presumption is that it was behind, that it was the, the face behind, uh, so that we have uh, each of the four directions covered. But uh, the idea that uh, the exact location of the, uh, of the Nesher uh, has been, is not defined will become relevant later on. But we, we started to discuss the, the idea of what these faces mean, the different faces mean, and uh, we gave some basic uh, superficial understanding of the faces. We described the human faces representing uh, humanity, representing Yaakov, because that was the face that uh, we discussed earlier on in one of the Shirim, that the face of the man was the face of Yaakov. Yaakov represented MS, uh, the upstairs world is a world of MS, the lion represented the royal house of Israel, Yehuda, and the ox represented the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, which uh, was generally defined in relation to the tribe of Yosef, who's described as an ox, and the eagle, so to speak, represented God um, in respect to the verse in Devorim, which describes God as, so to speak, uh, hovering over its fledglings. That's what... Uh, the verse in Hazinu describes the eagle as like God. God hovers over his creatures, um, protecting them, spreading its wings to keep them safe. So that was a, a sort of introduction to the way we're going to try and understand um, the nature of these faces. But we're going to go a lot deeper into this uh, posuk, into this verse. So that might appear to be already easy to understand. As I pointed out last week, there's been uh, a tremendous amount written on this. I, I'm going to start with uh, taking it slightly deeper. Um, and we'll start off with the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel gives a, a, a significant insight, um, one insight, a, a non-Kabbalistic insight, insight into the faces of these Chayos, the faces of these uh, Malachim, these angels. So he describes it as follows. Let me just see if I can... Again, mute. Not muted. There we go. Okay, so he writes as follows: Hatsuros or Ela, these uh, forms, these form forms of faces, yaches lemalochim heim, that were established, that could be seen on these angels. Kulam sehem sehem. They are directly related to the tasks that these particular angels perform. Asher yifnu v'yasu that um, the tasks that they are given to perform in this world, the Olam Hashafel, in this lowly world, by their creator. But when God sends them to do missions in this world, these particular faces represent the different types of work that these angels do when they come down into the earthly, lowly realm of the, this world, this physical world. Sometimes God will send an angel to have an interaction with a prophet. 
and to put words into the prophet's prophet's mouth, and into the the mind of a Talmud Chacham to give him some sort of understanding. In relation to this type of interaction, we have Re'epne Odo. We have the face of a man. Because he is the most intellectual, lecturally gifted, and um, well-versed in language and communication from all other languages, from all other living creatures. So... The face of the man represents the effect, the first face, the face of the Chaya that had the human face represents interaction between angels and human beings on the level of Chochmah. When God wants to give information or um, discharge some duty to a Novi, to a prophet, then the image that the prophet sees or the Talmud Chochmah sees is that of a man. The second phase, Upa'amim, sometimes Yishlach Malach of Lasov Kuvura, so Mishpat, Ba'oivab Kamalachim. Sometimes God sends angels to take action, take physical action, violent physical action, and deliver justice into the world. Shaholchu Lahafoth a stone, for example, the angel that came to destroy Sodom, Umalach Hashem, Shiyotza, Vahika, Bamachana, Melach Ashur, and the Malach the angel that came to destroy the camp of Assyria, Belayla Achas, Kuf Pei Elef Ish, it was a night of Pesach, the first night of Pesach, Jerusalem was surrounded um, in the time of King Chizkiyo HaMelech, it was surrounded by an army of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, the Malach came down on Pesach night, Seder night, and killed 185,000 soldiers. And uh, that's why, for example, in Chutz Oretz, um, we don't do it here in Israel, but in Chutz Oretz, we have two nights, there are two nights Seder, and on one of the nights Seder, it says, Now, that, that song, has got nothing to do with Pesach. Well, it has got to do with Pesach, but it's got nothing to do with the Exodus from Egypt. It's all, it's a song in relation to the Malach, the angel that came down, and on the first night of Pesach, when Jerusalem was besieged by the army of Sancheirev, the king of Assyria killed uh, the entire Assyrian army. They all lay dead in the field, their bodies unmarked. And in relation to this type of task that angels do in this world, the image of that type of, of uh, angel is the face of a lion. Uh, he is a destroyer. Hamashchis uh, Agadol. He's the great destroyer. But Edrei He destroys the flocks. He let the lion into the flock. He can kiss the flock goodbye. And as the Gemara in Bob Metzia says, when the lion gets among the flocks, matase. There's nothing to be done. So this is the the first two. The face of a man. Is, uh, represents an angel when it interacts with human beings to pass on messages from God or tasks or missions to, to man. The, uh, the face of a lion represents the angel when the angel comes to deliver justice, violent justice, uh, into the world. That's the face of the lion. The third face. Sometimes God will send the maloch an angel, lahetiv, to benefit people, hatzliach, and give them hatzlocha, uh, to give them hatzlocha, um, um, uh, to give them uh, um, wealth, affluence, to help them out, or to bless his servants, in every direction that they go, to help them out, but uh, it's, it's mentioned uh, by Avram Avinu, uh, he, I'm, I'm sending, uh, he, he, God will send his, his um, angel in front of you. This type of, when this type of angel comes into the world to help people out and to give, bring bracha, to bring goodness and to bring help and to bring uh, 
any type of uh, benefit to mankind, that's represented by the face of the shark, the ox. Because the, the face of the fox, it represents the face of the, uh, the uh, ox, not the fox. The face of the ox represents a bracha to the house, a blessing to the house. And uh, that uh, all the produce should be blessed. Just like it says in Mishlei, the Bosk in Mishlei, the, the Abarbanel quotes, Without the oxen, the manger is empty, but an abundance comes by the strength of an ox. In other words, uh, uh, today you don't use an ox to uh, deal with a field, but uh, today it would be the face on the uh, Merikava would be a combine harvester, but it's, the ox is the is the imagery of work done and uh, success in life, success in, in the physical world. So that is the third face. What about the fourth face? Upa'amim says, Yishlach Hashem we called sorrow. Sometimes great people, God's servants are in danger and God sends an angel, to put them back on the correct path, to help them when they're in trouble, that they shouldn't stumble, just like God said to Moshe, I'm sending you an angel to guide you on and look after you on the way. And David uh, Amelach, the psalmist, the, the man that wrote the book of Psalms, to Hillim, Omar, he said, that God commands the angels to guard you wherever you go. What type of uh, what type of imagery is conjured up by this type of maloch, this type of angel that comes to this world to help people out, to help people in trouble, and to guard people when they're on a journey? This is the nesher. This is the face of the eagle, because of the posse, which we mentioned earlier on, and we mentioned last week, an eagle uh, awakens its nest, uh, it, it hovers over its fledglings, um, it spreads its wings, and uh, taking them, taking its uh, young and carrying them on its back. So here you have the, the Balbanel says, uh, and this is, this is not Kabbalistic, this is just his thoughts um, on the, the four faces. They represent different uh, interactions. When God, so to speak, interacts with the world via Malachim, via angels, these are the faces of the angels that are represented by the four different types of interactions that uh, are um, that are part of God's way of interacting with the world, either in, either in in, in terms of um, intellectual interaction by the face of the angel has the face of a man, by an interaction in terms of justice, strict justice, violent strict justice. That's the face of the arie, the lion, um, when God wants to bless and to bring prosperity to people. The Malach has got the face of a shor, an ox. And when God wants to help people who are in trouble, to get them back on the right path, then we have the face of a nesher. That is represented by the face of a nesher, an eagle who always looks after and is always hovering over its young. So that's one way of looking at uh, the full face of the, uh, of the angels. We're going to go a lot deeper than that. And I'm going to go slowly here because, not because I, um, I want to go slowly, but I, I, it's very important for me that uh, everyone understands uh, all the material. So uh, just a footnote to what we just said, there's a halacha that's brought from the Gemara in the Zorah, in the Gemara of Zorah on Daf uh, Mem Gimel on the base on page 43, that these four images that we, we've described here the images of man, the images of the ox, the image of the lion, the image of the eagle. There's a Torah prohibition. Uh, I mentioned this last week when I was discussing the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, 
uh, there's a Torah prohibition in fashioning the, the figures of the four creatures that are on the divine chariot together. You're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to make a, a representation of the four figures that are described here on the chariot, on the Merkava. All other figures which are not in the likeness of these angels are permitted. And the Shulchan Aruch, um, just to um, identify exactly where the halacha is, the halacha is in Shulchan Aruch in Yoradea, Simon Kuf Mem Aleph, um, section 141, the Shulchan Aruch writes, It's also, it's prohibited to create drawings, pictures, um, sculptures, any type of representation of the Dalad Pomin Bahadi Adodi, of the four creatures, the four angels uh, that were represented here in the first chapter of Yechezkel, the Chain Surah Serofim, and the same applies to the appearance of the Serofim, the uh, fire uh, angels, which we've not discussed yet, but of Fanim and the circular angels, which we've not discussed yet, Umalachei Ashores and the ministering angels, which we've not discussed yet, and even to create a full picture of a man, says the Shulchan Aruch, he's also called You're not allowed to do it, even if it's just for decoration. And even if a non-Jew um, creates the, any type of these pictures or any type of these drawings or any type of these sculptures for you, um, gives them to you, sells them to you, also, you're not allowed to hang them on your walls. Um, it's absolutely also, it's not clear from a Shulchan Aruch, whether it's, an, it's a deoriser, whether it's a biblical prohibition, but it's certainly a prohibition. So I just wanted to mention that uh, because uh, I know I've gotten myself into that problem when I visited South Africa. Those that have visited South Africa know that you go to the, wherever you go in South Africa, so there's these uh, marketplaces where they're selling images, all sorts of images, right? Images of lions and tigers and gods and all sorts of things, right? So you've got to be very careful what you buy and you've got to be very careful what you hang on your walls. Um, okay, let's move on a little bit. Uh, before we move on, there is a slight complication uh, to the analysis we've just drawn, which is the analysis of the Abarbanel, uh, that uh, he's given you a, 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 a basic insight into what these faces represent, the, the representations of interactions with different types of angels on, on, on different types of missions on behalf of God in the physical world. But there's, there is a problem for those of you have, who those of you that have got a book of Yechezkel in front of you, um, if you could turn to chapter 10 and verse 14, uh, you'll see the problem. Because in chapter 10 and verse 14, what we see is Yechezkel, so, so to speak, revisits um, his vision of the Merkava, of God's chariot, in a secondary, less complete version. And in chapter 10, verse 14, we have some, some sort of a contradiction because there, again, in chapter 10, verse 14, he describes again the four faces on the chariot of God. He describes the first face as the face of a crook, a cherub, which we'll discuss shortly. And the, the face of the second angel had the face of a man. And the third one was the face of a, a lion, and the fourth one was the face of an eagle. Now that's problematic because it seems from our verse that the four faces were uh, man, lion, ox, and eagle. Now in his uh, description, in the Yechezkel description, chapter 10, one of them has been replaced. The face, the face of the ox has been removed and the face of a crub, a cherub, which we'll discuss in a second, has been uh, brought on. And uh, the ox has gone and the cherub has replaced it. Uh, so you can clearly see that um, a cherub, now a cherub, a uh, crub, we'll, we'll get into exactly what a crub is in a second, but generally speaking, it means a child's face. Um, so exactly why the face has been changed, will is something we'll deal with uh, in a little bit of detail now. 
it does seem strange that the face of uh, God's chariot, which is eternal and has existed from the first second of creation, should undergo a change um, just while we're watching, right? We're, we're learning Yechezkel and there it is, it's changed. Something that's supposed to be eternal and absolutely uh, uh, carved in stone exactly what it should be. One second. Who's, uh, people are chatting. Can you not make a likeness together? You can do one of a lion. Old Shul in South Africa had the two luchot over the ark with the lion. Oh, that's not a problem. Uh, the luchos with the, just a lion by itself. It's the four together you can't do, uh, 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 Ben. You can't do the four together. Uh, see my question that, about... That's not a question if you could do it in the middle. That was the Lion of Judah, actually. I think that's what it's supposed to represent. Yeah, the Lion of Judah, Haile Selassie. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, okay, so it does seem a bit strange that um, we've, we've, in Chapter 10 already, we've already had a change in the uh, personnel around the, uh, around the Merkava, around the chariot. So the Gemara in Chagiga explains the change. The Gemara says... Uh, points out the discrepancy. It says, you know, in one place it says the four faces were the face of a lion, the man, um, uh, the man, the lion on the right hand side, uh, the ox on the left hand side. Um, and then it says uh, later on in chapter 10 that the face of the ox had been removed and the face of a cherub had been uh, replaced with it. Um, so the Gemara there says the name of Reish Lokish that uh, Yechezkel requested mercy. Yecheskel davened, and uh, the face of an ox, uh, should the, the face of the ox should be removed, and had it turned into a cherub. He, he said before God as follows, that uh, how can an accuser, a kategor, an accuser, become a defender, a senegor? The, the face of an ox recalls the sin of Israel and the golden calf. It would be preferable, says the Gemara. This is the way Reish Lokish understands it. It would be preferable for there to be a different face on the divine chariot. So basically, when what the Gemara is telling you is when Yechezkel first saw the sight of the ox, though so it's uh, you know it's a, it reminds him it's it's a, it's supposed to remind you, uh, as we discussed earlier, of the sin of the golden calf. Yechezkel says we don't want to be reminded of that anymore. Thank you. Can you do us a favor and change it over for something a little more appropriate to the Jewish people? So it's interesting that uh, God would do that. And it's interesting that the, the power of Yechezkel's prayer, which we will discuss. Um, but uh, just getting back to this Gemara, that the, the prayer of um, Yechezkel caused a change in the divine chariot. So um, like the... The four original faces were changed, and uh, you've got a kruv, uh, which again we'll discuss in a second. So the Ben Yoda, uh, the Ben Ishchai, who was again the, uh, the great Kabbalist, uh, uh, died at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, he was the Rebbe of Rabbi Kaduri, who died not long ago, a few years ago. Um, also, the great Kabbalist who lived in Yushalayim. So his Rebbe was uh, the Ben Ishchai, who's also known as the Ben Yoda. So he gives us a, 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 an in-depth uh, explanation, esoteric, uh, much deeper understanding of this Gemara, what the Gemara means that uh, Yechezkel prayed and the face of the eagle was removed and the face of a crew was uh, uh, put there in place of it. So he says, Yechezkel bikeshol avrachamim, v'hofchul l'kruv, that Yechezkel prayed to God for mercy and uh, the face of the ox was removed and was replaced with a crook, a cherub. Nirali b'siyata dishmayu. He says, it appears to me, with the help of heaven, gora. Um, gora is a word for rebuke. Gora. He says, gora is the rebuke of the eagle, the rebuke of the shar, the rebuke of the ox. That's what it's there to do. It's to rebuke you for your, for your sins. That's uh, for the sin of the golden calf. So he says, Ga'ara, this word Ga'ara, which is a Kabbalistic word, Ga'ara, which is actually a Hebrew word, but it's using Kabbalistic uh, uh, linguistics to describe a rebuke, a roar, a roar of rebuke. He says it's got a gematria of 278. And it's, uh, it's a reminder, this word Ga'ara is a reminder of din. It's a reminder of strict justice. 
and Gevura and of Midasadim. And he says uh, all the time that the eagle, uh, the face of this ox, is appearing on the Merkava. It's an indication that the Jewish people are still suffering from the sin of the golden calf, because we're told at the time of the golden calf, and it's quite clear from many Gemaras, that uh, we weren't punished for the sin of the golden calf all at once. Every time through Jewish history, the Jewish people were, were punished. Part of the punishment was in lieu of the delayed punishment for what was done at the time of the golden calf. So he continues. I, I can see this questions. I'll take the questions in, in a couple of seconds. So he says this word ga'ara, this word for rebuke, the, the rebuke of the eagle, the rebuke of the shah, this ox, has got a gematria of 278. If you remove the midasadin, you remove the 278, the, the numerical value 278, now the word shah has got a gematria of 506, shin vov reish. Shin is 300, vov is uh, 6, and reish is 200, 506. So if you take the gematria of ga'ora, which is the, um, the uh, rebuke, the rebuke of the agel, if you take it re the rebuke out of it, you take the number 278 off the number 506, which is the gematria of shar, yishar kruv, you're left with the gematria of 228, which is the gematria of Kruv, of the cherub. Essentially, what the prayer of Yechezkel was, that God should remove the rebuke, the midasadin, the strict justice from the shor, from the imagery of the shor, which has got a gematria of 506, leaving uh, just uh, a gematria of, of 228 in its place, which is the gematria of Kruv, Kaf, Reish, Kaf is 20, Reish is 200, that's 220. Um, Vav is 6 and base is 2, that's 8, 228, representing the innocence of a child. In other words, the prayer was that God should take away guilt. The Shah represents the guilt of the Jewish people and replace it with a Kruv, which is a child, which represents innocence. So that was the prayer of Yechezkel after he saw in this first chapter here, after he saw the uh, image of the ox representing the Midasadin, he prayed that it should be removed and should re be replaced with the Midasarachamim, with the uh, God's um, uh, representation of divine mercy, which is, is represented by a crook, which is the innocence of a child. Behidne, he writes, Mitchila Hoya Sofi Tevashalahem Osios Merora. If you, if you take the, the four animals that appeared on the Merkava, the Odom, the Shor, the Nesher, and the Are, the man, the ox, the eagle, and the lion. So if you take the last letters of each of those words, you'll get Mem, Reish, Reish, Hey, Merora, meaning bitter. Shoinian Merirus. It's an idea of bitterness. Shehoilahem Machmas HaKitrog, Ba'odo Shor. That's while that ox was still on, the uh, Merkava, while the face of the ox was still on the Merkava, there was an idea of, of bitterness in the relationship between God and the Jewish people. But, says the Ben uh, Ishchai, once the face of the Shor had been removed and it had been replaced with the place of a Kruv, that uh, now you've got Odom, Arie, Nesher, Kruv, man, Lion, eagle, crook. The last letters of those words make up mem hey reish base ma rav, and that stands for the pasuk ma rav tuvcha asher tzufantu How great is the goodness that you do for those who fear you? So he says this is all kabbalistic stuff. Um, that there's kabbalistic intent as well as the intent. Uh, to remove an image that represents guilt and strict justice to change over into an image of innocence and uh, forgiveness. There's also a, a Kabbalistic uh, understanding of the letters of the words, the letters of the words that when you take the word Shorat and you replace it with, with the word Kruv, it changes the emphasis of the imagery of the Merkava from an, uh, a message of Merora, Mar, we're gonna have on, on Pesach, we're going to eat moror, which is bitterness. So it, it, while the shor, while the ox was still on the Merkava, 
it represented the bitterness because at this time in, in Jewish history, you have to remember going back to something that were, uh, uh, we discussed the timeline here and something we're going to discuss in great detail as we go through the chapters of Yechezkel. This is a terrible time for the Jewish people. It's a time when the, the Jewish people are going to exile, when the base of Middash is about to be destroyed and everything's going wrong. So there's an expression here of Marora with those four images on there. It's a, a bitterness between uh, the relationship between the Jewish people and God. So Yechezkel says, no, we don't want that to have that relationship. We want to have the relationship of Morav, that Morav Tuvcha, that God should, so to speak, uh, uh, display great goodness to those that fear God. Um, he says, furthermore, this is coming into the end of his drosha now, he says, Gam if you take the first letters of these words, Odom, Shor, Nesha, Arie, man, ox, eagle, and lion, you get Al, Aleph, Shin, Nun, Aleph, Esne, I will hate, Shuinian, Sino. It's a language of hatred. It's a negative, um, it's a negative imagery through the words, creates a negative imagery. As long as the shor, as long as the ox remained on the Merkava, so these letters spelt out something that was negative, something that uh, is the opposite of how the relationship which should be between God and the Jewish people. Instead of esner, it, it shouldn't be uh, a, an expression of hate. But va'achakaf, once the once the had been removed, nasa roshetevus shalahem anch alav alav nun ches. Nun kaf, Adam, Arye, Nesha, Krub. The first letters are Aleph, Aleph, Nun kaf, which is Aancho, Shu Roshetavis, Agudos, Oros, Nutsutsos, Kalim. He brings up from the Zohar that uh, the gathering of the light of the, and the sparks of the original uh, vessels of creation, which is uh, the uh, Kabbalistic approach to the process of spiritual and physical exile and eventual redemption, that the world was created, so to speak, by the scattering, the breaking of a cleat, breaking of a vessel, and the holy sparks of creation were scattered all over the planet. But the uh, redemption of Israel is due to the fact that by doing the mitzvahs, we're gathering together all these sparks back together and recreating the point of creation and that will lead from physical exile to spiritual redemption. So he says that all, all this is involved in Yechezkel's thought processes and how he thought about it from a pragmatic point of view, that we don't want to be seeing uh, any negative images. Uh, it should all be positive because I'm a prophet and I've got to express these ideas to the population, to my electorate, and I don't want to be expressing anything that uh, gives an... Uh, um, gives across a message of negativity, of a breakdown in the relationship, despite the fact that we're going through a period of punishment, that the, uh, the message from the chariot, the message from God's Merakova, so to speak, should be a positive one rather than a negative one. So Ubezeh, finally, he says, Ubezeh, nearly, Bisiata Dishmaya, he says, uh, therefore it seems to me, with the help of heaven, Masha Omer Labilom, that what God said to Bilom, don't curse these people. Remember, Bilom was uh, tasked with Bolok to curse the Jewish people. God tells him, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to curse these people, these Jews. Because they are blessed. So he says the word Boruch here. To get rid of the... that Bilom wanted to create uh, accusations against the, the Jewish people. When the ox, the agel, the rem reminder of the sin of the golden calf was still on the Merkava, so that creates a, an accuser for Israel. But, God says they can't be cursed. Because in the future, the ox will be replaced with a kruv. That's what it means in the Posuk in Bilam. So you're going to have an insight into this Posuk. That the, when God says, don't curse these people, ki baruchu, change the word, letters of the word baruch around, and you'll get the word kruv. 
So the, uh, the, the methodology by which Bilon wants to curse the Jewish people was through cursing them because of the sin that they did with the golden calf. God says no, kiborochu, because uh, eventually we're going to remove the ox from the Merkava. It's no longer going to be an, an issue. Kiborochu, because the Jewish people are blessed. Boruch is the same letters, base, base, resh, vov, kaf. You change the letters around, you get the word kruv. Osios Kruvheve. And these are, this is the reason why it was changed into a Kruv. So that is a, a partially pragmatic, not pra pragmatic, but partially um, straightforward, but uh, also deeply esoteric insight into exactly why, although this is the vision of Yechezkel at the moment, as soon as the, uh, as soon as he goes past this vision, the first thing he's going to do is to pray for this, this imagery of the ox to be removed. Now, as we go further into this, into this verse, we're going to uh, get a, a deeper understanding of the representations of these four creatures, the man, the ox, um, the eagle, and the lion. Um, but I just want to dwell, if I can, for a few minutes on the crook, because... Um, what is a kruv? Because people often have difficulty understanding it. It appears a few couple of times in the Torah, the language of kruv. It appeared in last week's parasha, which is why I want to just uh, go through um, some background uh, so that when we, we go further in uh, the book of Yechezkel, we'll have a deeper understanding of what the kruvim are, these cherubs are. Uh, as I said, uh, in last week's parasha, in parasha Struma, so uh, the Jews were commanded to create these kruvim. They were commanded to create them out of solid gold and the, the child's faces and wings above their heads. And uh, you can see pictures of them online. Um, and uh, in the art scroll, they've got uh, indications. And if you want a, a deeper insight into the kruvim, you can go to um, the Temple Institute online, which has got uh, significant, uh, very interesting uh, um, drawings and um, um, representations, imagery of the crew. But I just want to give you a bit of a deeper insight into what these creatures are, what a crew is, what a cherub is. So the first time we come across a cherub, a crew, is funnily enough, uh, I described it just now as something that uh, has got the face of a child, right? It's got innocence. Uh, it's, it's a representation of innocence. Now, before I just do this, see if there's any questions that I should be answering. Um, one second. Did God change the face of the ox or did God just change the vision? You has? No, he changed it. We'll see, who wrote that, Larry? We'll see soon as we get deeper into this, uh, this verse that God changed change the uh, the the um, change the ox yeah not his not his um, not his um, understanding or not his imagery of it not his vision of it he actually changed it we'll see we'll see why um, as we go through but I just want to uh, again uh, the first time we come across Krub is in Boratius in the third chapter of Boratius where we have the story of the Garden of Eden, and we all know the story, Adam and Chava, they get thrown out, and uh, they do something wrong, whatever it is they did wrong. Um, they certainly did something wrong because they were expelled from the Garden. And the Torah tells us uh, there that uh, God, so to speak, put, protected um, the Garden from any route back in. He protected them by the Kruvim. And it says there that the Kruvim, uh, were at the entrance to the Garden of Eden or the exit to the Garden of Eden and they were wielding revolving swords. Um, Rashi says over there that uh, these uh, Kruvim, he describes the Kruvim as Malche Chavola, that they were destructive angels. So that's the, the first time uh, we come across um, the, uh, the mention of a cherub or a Kruv in the Torah, was they are the guardians to prevent uh, humanity getting back into the Garden of Eden. They're wielding swords to prevent uh, anybody getting into the Garden of Eden. And the Medrash says, They were specifically designed, these Kruvim, these angels with the, the child, childlike faces, 
We're designed there to guard the way back to the Eitzachayim, to the tree of life, the tree of eternal life. They, uh, they used shofim, uh, they used sorcery. They had the ability to prevent anyone from getting back in. They were malachei chavola. They were angels of destruction. So if you tried to get back in, and we, we don't see actually, it's it, what's one of the interesting things is in Barashas, is that when Adam and Chava were kicked out of the and expelled from the Garden of Eden, they made no attempt, or certainly we don't see in the text that they made any attempt to try and get back in. Like uh, they never tried to sneak uh, back in through a back door or anything. Um, and uh, these cherubim, these uh, cherubs, these childlike images, they can picture the, uh, the um, imagery of children wielding swords. You don't want to get in the way of that. Um, so that's the first time we're the cherubim are mentioned. The next time the Torah mentions the cherubim is in Shemos, uh, which we've just discussed um, in last week's parasha, where it describes the construction of the ark. And the Torah designates their manufacture in the following way. It says, You shall make two golden keruvim, cherubs. You shall make them out, hammered. They should be hammered out of one piece of gold. Uh, from the two ends of the ark cover. That's where they sat. They sat on top of the ark cover. And... Um, it continues by saying, You should make one uh, from one side, and one on the other side. Um, uh, you put them on the two ends of the Oron um, on the ark. They're the designed that their wings will spread upwards. Um, uh, their faces should be turned to each other. Um, and you place the ark uh, cover on the ark. And uh, that's where you'll place the Kruvim. The, the when God says, when I want to speak to you, I will speak to you from between. My voice will come out from between the two Kruvim from between the two cherubs that are on Asher al-Aaron Ha'edus, which are on the Ark of, uh, of, of Testimony. That's what I command you, the, the Jewish people. So here we have a different description of the Kruvim. From the Torah's description here, the thing that we can deduce is that the Kruvim were an identical pair of figurines made from the same piece of gold. They had faces and wings and were placed at either end of the ark facing each other. So it doesn't tell us here exactly what they look like. It tells us uh, that they had to be uh, have wings and face upwards and the wings face upwards, etc., etc. So what did they look like? So the Gomorrah Sukkah fills in the details. Um, the Gomorrah Sukkah and Dafhei tells us that their appearance is having the likeness of children or babies even. That's two different opinions in the Gomorrah. Um, that were one tefach, which is about four inches long. So you have baby faces or childlike faces on these kruvim that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, inside the Kodesh Kadoshim in the base of Mikdash. The Gemara then says as follows. Omar Abach Bar Yaakov, Gimiri, we learned this by tradition. Ein pnei kruvim pechusim mitefach that we have a tradition that the cherubs were not smaller than a handbreadth, a tefach, which is about four inches. Umay kruv, says the Gemara, uh, what is the form of the kruv? Omarabavo karavia. It's, it's the face of aravia, karavia. She came bavovol korin leonoka ravia. That's the Aramaic word for a baby, a child, a very young child or a baby. So the Gemara says, So Abai said to him, well, that's a bit strange then, because in the 10th chapter of Yechezkel, we discover that... Uh, the faces on the Merkava have changed. In the first verse, in, in the first chapter of Yechezkel, 
you've got a face of a shore, a face of a man, a face of a shore, an ox, a face of a lion, a face of an eagle. Then the face of the ox was changed to the face of this crook. Now you're telling me this face of a crook is the face of a child, which is another human being. So why would God, although you got two chayas carrying the Merkava, um, why would God have two faces on the same Merkava with the same face of a human being? Um, like uh, you got, you already got the face of a man on uh, the the uh, the Merkava. You already got a man's face. You had a man. You had a lion. You had an eagle, and you had a shark. So what are you doing now? You're taking off the shark, the ox, and you're putting another man's face on it, or another human's face on it. So the Gemara says no. The difference between them is that the human face is the face of an adult. Um, and the other face, the face of a cherub, is the face of a, of a child. The face described as the face of a man is the face of an adult. An adult is a person who has done mitzvahs and is a person that's done avayus. The face described as the face of a child is, that, is the, the face of innocence. Now, the face of innocence isn't necessarily good or evil. And this is something that um, uh, we have to understand. The face of a child is parab, in the sense that children don't do good and they don't do evil. They're just innocent. They've not got to the stage where they're responsible for their actions, so they can't be considered to be sinners or considered to be tzaddikim. They're neither. So really, the face that has replaced the face of the shark, the face of the, it, it, it is a face of innocence. It's a face of a child. But in the sense of comparative to the face of a man, a man can be do good things and a man can do bad things. Babies, children can't do either. They're not capable of knowing the difference. If you don't know the difference between good and bad, so you can't do either. Children are just children. So essentially, the, the face of the crook replacing, this is what the Gemara is getting at here, the face of the crook that's the face of a child that repl re replaces the face of the ox, is replacing something that is accusatory, the ox representing the sin of the golden calf, to represent representation of innocence. Now, innocence isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just innocent. The child is just innocent. It's neither good nor bad. It's parrot. So that's the first piece of information. So th there we have, we have, where are we so far? We've got a crow, we've got two crow in God in the Garden of e Eden, the entry back into the Garden of Eden, and there Rashi tells us, and the Gemara tells us, they are uh, mashchis, they are destructive angels. Here, uh, when the, the construction of the Mishkan, the construction of the base of Migdosh is made, there have to be Kruvim, uh, faces of innocence. So it, it's, a, it's getting a little difficult to try and reconcile the two ideas, the idea of a child wielding a sword uh, in anger, in destructive mode, and the idea of a child on top of the Oren HaKodesh in the Holy of Holies representing innocence, representing essentially representing the two Kruvim, represent the relationship between the Jewish people and God. So the Gemara in Yuma um, contributes a little bit more background information um, to these Kruvim. So the Gemara says, Omar of Katina, when the Jewish people used to go up to Yushalayim for the three foot festivals on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, so the Kohanim used to slightly open the curtains into the Holy of Holies. So that they could see the Kruvim, they could see the cherubs sitting on top of the Oro, sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, when the when they they uh, the vision the imagery that they got was of the kruvim the two kruvim the two childlike angels hugging each other and they would say to the people look look how God how beloved you are before God like the love of the male and the female, because the Kruvim, the Gemara here has indicated the Kruvim um, were uh, two children, a male and a female, and when the Jews, Jewish people came to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, on the foot festivals, they were given a glimpse of the Trub, of the Kruvim, of the cherubs, and they were an embrace, in the loving embrace. Uh, Tosa says, says, have shown him say there, that they're actually 
what they could see was the Cherubim actually engaged in physical intimacy to indicate to the Jewish people the relationship, the closeness relationship that God had with his people. Um, so what happened to these Kruvim? So these Kruvim were hidden a little bit later on uh, by King Yoshiol, together with the Ark, with the Oren HaKodesh, with the Ark of the Covenant, years before the destruction, uh, which is uh, where we're up to now in history, at the time of Yecheskel, Nebuchadnezzar is about to destroy the base of Mikdosh, which we've discussed. At uh, this period in history, the Kruvim and the original Kruvim, um, together with the Oran, have been hidden, um, which is also recorded in the Gemara. The Gemara that says, Osanya, Mishanignas Oran, when King Yoshiohu, uh, who was a, a very, very um, uh, righteous king, when he hid the Oran, the Ark of the Covenant, Nignas Oimot, Sinsenas Hamon, he hid also uh, the last remaining uh, piece of the manna that the people used in the desert that was also kept in the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, and the bottle of oil, anointing oil that they used in the base of Migdosh to anoint a Kohen Godel, a high priest or a king, and the stick of Aaron that sprouted almonds and flowers, Argos, Sheshigro, Pelishtim, Doron, Lalahe Israel, and the um, the wagon that the Pelishtim sent back to the to the Israelites with the gold, uh, magical gold bits on it, which uh, I'm not going to go into now. That's from the Book of Shmuel. So um, these 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 were all um, um, these were all uh, hidden away, including the Kruvim. So the Gemara there says, me, she, me, Gonzu, who, who um, hid them away. So the Gemara says, Yoshio, King Yoshio. Um, so the Gemara says, Ma Ro, uh, Shigonzu, Ro, Shikosov, Yolech Hashem, Oschov, Esmalkucha, Shetokim Olecha, Omad Vigonzo. So um, he, uh, he saw in the, he, he opened the Sefer Torah, and he, he saw in the Sefer Torah that the, the Possek he turned to in the Sefer Torah, uh, the apostle said, God will bring you and your king whom he shall set over you to a nation that you do not know. In other words, he understood from the verse that they were going to exile. And since he knew that the Jewish people would be exiled, he thought it was better to uh, hide away uh, all the uh, necessary, all the movable objects in the base of Migdash. And that's that's what happened to the Kruvim. So where they are today is uh, remains a mystery. Uh, we don't know. But from the way that the Gomorrah describes the Kruvim on the Ark, um, this is the problem we've got, because uh, the Talmud describes the Kruvim, these cherubs on the Ark in the Kodesh Kadosh, the Holy of Holies, we see that these winged, child-like creatures expressed a loving connection between God and the people. But the question is, how do you reconcile that loving description of the Kruvim, the idea of them acting as angels, of or acting as uh, the representations of God in, so, so to speak, um, ecstasy in his relationship with the Jewish people, uh, an idea of love and uh, warmth and intimacy uh, with the same angels that are described as being destructive, uh, wielding revolving swords at the gates of the Garden of Eden. These are the same creatures um that were that were sent there to prevent the uh, Adam and Chava from re-entering the God. So how do you how do you reconcile the 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 difference between the descriptions or the the seemingly contradiction between the descriptions of a Malach Chavola, a destructive angel standing in the uh, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with his sword at the ready to the idea of the intimacy of the Kruvim inside the Holy of Holies in Yerushalayim. So the, uh, the Gemara, another Gemara, Gemara and Baba Basra, that Tzadi tests on page 99, makes this observation about the nature of the Kruvim of the cherubs on the ark. So the Gemara asks, asks the following question, Ketad Haim Omdin, how, are the, how did the cherubs stand? So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan Rebbe Loza. So it's a difference of opinion between Rabbi Yochanan and Rebbe Loza. Chad ish el One says the faces were turned towards uh, each other. 
V'chad Omar Pnehem Labais. And one says the faces were turned towards the sanctuary. In other words, they were turned away from each other. So the Gemara says, Laman, I'm according to the opinion that says Pnehem Ish El Ochov, Hoksibu Pnehem Labais. So the Gemara says, according to the opinion, says that they were facing each other. It also says that they, their faces were towards the house. So the Gemara says, low kasha, that's not a question. The angels moved. The, the Kuruvim moved. When the relationship between the Jewish people and God was very strong, very close. So, so the Kuruvim hugged each other, we're in, we're in a intimate embrace. Um, when the relationship between God and the Jewish people started to go downhill, the Kruvim disentangled themselves from each other and moved away from each other. Um, uh, they turned around and, so to speak, ignored each other. They turned their heads away from each other. So the actions of the Kruvim, in fact, so the Gemara tells you the story when the Romans finally broke through and uh, came into the Holy of Holies in Yerushalayim, and uh, they saw the Kruvim on top of the Ark. They saw the cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They laughed because they said to themselves, these Jews, they're always talking about, you know, no graven images, and we worship a God that can't be seen, and the God we worship a God that's got no physical appearance. And look at them. In the holiest place, they've got representations. They've got golden idols in their, in their um, Holy of Holies. So they, they laughed and they picked these Roman soldiers, picked up the Kruvim that were facing away from each other because it was a time of destruction, a time of Chavola, the time of exile, the time that the base of English was going to be destroyed. And they picked them up. They picked these two Kruvim up that were one, made in one piece, but they were now facing away from each other. And they started to carry it through the streets. As they were carrying it through the streets, the Gemara says, God showed them what, what's what. Because as they were walking, the faces started to turn around and face each other again and started to embrace. And the Roman soldiers dropped the Kruvim and ran. So um, that's an indication. So the, the Kruvim looked away from each other at a time when the Jewish people and God's relationship was on the rock, so to speak. At the time when the relationship was very strong, the Kruvim hugged each other. The actions of the Kruvim are indicators of how God feels, so to speak if you can say it in that way, about his creations at any moment of time, any moment in time. They're at once the ultimate expression of his love for his people, but at the same time, they're the harbinger of impending trouble and destruction. What the Kuruvim represent at any particular time depends on the actions of the Jewish people. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky writes as follows. He says that the same Kuruvim, that held the revolving sword as they stood guard at the gates of the Garden of Eden are not doomed to that position forever. They can change their nature drastically at any given moment. To do that, they need to be replaced or placed on the Ark of the Covenant in the Kodesh Kadoshim, in the Holy of Holies, where they are, uh, when they are there, they guard it and cherish it. In other words, they don't have to be guarding with a sword the entry back into the Garden of Eden. They can leave there and uh, restore egg entry into the Garden of Eden and sit on the Holy of Holies. He continues, young children are affected by their whereabouts and their environment. Place them as guards and they will flourish their swords. Put them with the ark, let them feel the holiness of the temple and they will become the Kruvim we all cherish and aspire to emulate. The, the Odom and Chava were expelled from the garden and were prevented from returning by the Kruvim because at that moment, they represented God's displeasure with their actions. The entrance to the garden is not permanently sealed. The entrance to the garden of Eden is not permanently sealed. However, because just as the Kuruvim can display God's displeasure when the Jewish people do not follow the Torah, they can also display his pleasure, his love, his relationship, his intimacy for his own people. If they repent faithfully, then the image of the Kruvim as children gives the Jewish people a clue as to how they can turn the revolving sword, preventing re-entry into the Garden of Eden, into a new era in history when the barriers to the Garden, the Kruvim, will have moved. They've been removed and taken away and been replaced, put back where they belong in a rebuilt base amygdosh. And once again, he says, sit on top of the Ark 
of the covenant in a rebuilt temple in Yerushalayim. A young child is honest, innocent, and incorruptible. The Odom and Chava were expelled from the garden because they lost this innocence. They lost this honesty. They lost this incorruptibility. And they did that through sin. They were dishonest with their creator when confronted with that sin. They denied what they had done and were corrupted by the snake and by each other. In order to return to the garden, or in our case, to rebuild the base of, rebuild the base of Migdash, the Jewish people have to repent, recapture their innocence, their honesty, and their incorruptibility, which is depicted by the childlike Kuruvim. If they can do that, if they can do that, the Kuruvim will move from their station guarding, guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden and uh, the access to the Tree of Eternal Life, and once again be seen by the Jewish people embracing during the three foot festivals in the Holy of Holies in a rebuilt Yerushalayim. Yechezkel's prayer to God changed the image of the Shar, or the Egel, the Calf, representing only the sins of the Jewish people, into an image of hope, and into an image of the of the Kruv, the Cherub, which is the imagery, imagery of hope. The new imagery, the Cherub, that's replaced the Shar, the accuser, is a sign that through Teshuva, through repentance, it's a message to Yechezkel. And this is the message that Yechezkel wants to give to God, and God is giving back to Yechezkel. That through Teshuva, the current, which for them is current, Babylonian exile, and indeed any exile can be brought to an end. The Kruv signifies that before Teshuva, the route back to Yerushalayim is guarded by the revolving sword. You can't get back to Yerushalayim. You can't get back to the base of Migdosh. You can't have any of that without Teshuvah. But after Teshuvah, the Kruv, the cherub, will return with the Jewish people to Yerushalayim and once again sit on top of the Oren HaKodesh in the Holy of Holies in a rebuilt city and a rebuilt temple. The, joy, the choice of how the Kruvim, how the cherubs will behave is entirely dependent on the behavior of the Jewish people. So that we see what we can see, finally, sorry, I'm a bit late here. What we can see from this turnaround in the imagery, from uh, the original imagery that uh, he has here, Yechezkel has of Ashar, which is accusing the Jewish people of being sinners, to the imagery of the cherub, which is the, in, in the vision of hope, the image of the restoration of honesty, of innocence to the Jewish people through teshuva, is a reminder of the power of prayer. It's the davening of Yechezkel that managed to change the appearance and essence of God's Kisei Hakova, God's throne, God's Merkova, God's chariot. Just imagine that such an immutable, eternal, spiritual object that's well beyond our comprehension, the chariot of God. He managed to change it from one representation of din, of punishment, of judgment, uh, of the Jewish people into the imagery of innocence, mercy, and potential redemption for all mankind. A physical uh, an analogy, a physical analogy would be like changing the physical laws of the universe with a mere thought. This is, I just want to finish up with this thought. This is the power of prayer. This is the power of tefillah. Yechezkel Davin for this. What we will see from Yechezkel again and again throughout the Sefer is his ability not to remove punishment that's coming to the Jews of Yehuda, the southern kingdom, and to the people of Yushalayim, because the people didn't do Teshua. But what he can do and what he did manage is to soften the blow of exile through, through his extraordinary power of prayer. So that is essentially the Kruvim, um, why the Kruvim uh, were, uh, why Yechezkel prayed for the ox to be removed and the Kruv uh, to be installed. What it means, um, there's a lot there. I mean, we've said a lot, we've said a lot today. Uh, I've gone over time, unfortunately. So um, next week, we've, we've still, we're still not, uh, we're still not halfway through this verse yet. So um, we'll, we'll, Hashem, next week we'll go back to the verse and actually deal with the four, the four characters that we've got in front of us at the moment, which includes the ox. Um, 
and we'll get a, a much, much deeper insight into what these four creatures represent. Um, if anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Sorry, I've gone over the time. I hope everyone got that. I mean, that was, that was, um, that was heavy duty stuff. Um, um, do I remember that during temple times when things were really going well, that um, during Yom Kippur, the cherubim would move for, forget they'd face each other if the Jewish people were forgiven and face yes 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 absolutely yeah. thanks <clears throat> thanks Harry okay if there's no more questions sorry I went over time um I just wanted to make sure everyone understood the material next week next week we're going back to this posuk and we're going to get a a deeper insight into exactly what Yechezkel is seeing here uh, from the perspective of um, esoteric sources and also more uh, mainline uh, opinions as well. So Steve? if that's it, call to everybody. Thanks, thank you. Thank you. See you tonight. See you tonight. Call to. All right. Bye all. Bye. Thank you.